if you're hoping Trump to lose, like ads like this should scare you. Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow, and this is our weekly roundup, where we invite a rotating panel of experts to discuss the truth you need to know behind the most important stories of the week and how they're shaping the political landscape. And on today's outstanding panel of Politicology veterans, crisis communications consultant, political strategist, and MSNBC political analyst, our good friend Susan Del Percio. Susan, good morning. Great to see you. Good morning and happy new year. Great to be here. And we have Politicology fan favorite, Lene Erickson. Lene is the senior vice president for social policy and politics at Third Way. She also served on President Obama's advisory council on faith-based and neighborhood partnerships, although she spends most of her time thinking and talking about no labels these days. Lene, welcome back. How are you? I'm all right. Happy election year. And the one and only Frank Sadler. Frank is chief of staff at Carly Fiorina Enterprises. He also served as the campaign manager for Carly's 2016 presidential campaign and was an advisor to former U.S. Senator George Allen of Virginia. Frank, it's always great to have you on. Welcome back. Well, thanks for having me. Happy New Year, guys. Happy New Year, indeed. Up first this week, the 2024 presidential race, the wild cards, how we're evaluating them and what they could mean come November. Then we'll get into Joe Biden's falling border numbers, the political realities, the policy realities it continues to have. Then our panel will tell us about the developments they're watching and why. After the main show, we will tape our Politicology Plus episode where we're going to talk about the rise in swatting, which is when someone calls in a fake police report trying to get the SWAT team to respond to a fake emergency or active shooter situation of elected officials, judges, and even the special prosecutor overseeing the cases against Donald Trump. To join us for that discussion, plus more ad-free episodes all on a private podcast feed, go to politicology.com slash plus, or just open the show notes for this episode and click the link right at the top. Okay, I want to start today by looking broadly as possible at the dynamics in the presidential race. So I'll give us the lay of the land uh, and a roadmap here, and then we can open up into a bigger discussion. Uh, Polling, punditry, editorializing, most of it I've seen all sort of assumes two candidates in the race, but we here know that isn't the case. Listeners, you know that too. We need to think just beyond the Trump versus Biden narrative uh, and look at the whole board and how the other candidates may shape the race. That's not to say that RFK Jr. or Jill Stein are going to be president, but simply being on the ballot in certain battleground states has major and perhaps decisive implications for who carries key states. We are about to start hitting big primary milestones. The Iowa caucus is on January 15th, right around the corner. New Hampshire primary is on the 23rd. In February, we've got South Carolina, Nevada, and Michigan, and then Super Tuesday hits on March 5th. There are a lot of wild cards in this race uh, that make it difficult, especially at this point in the cycle, to predict what's going to happen. And those include third-party and independent candidates, Uh, There is the No Labels organization, which we've talked about at length here. They now have a super PAC called New Leaders 24. They've filed paperwork with the FEC this week. They've got $2 million in initial commitments. They told the Times they're going to hit $300 million if they have a quote-unquote viable ticket. We will dig into that. Uh, Which leads to the next point that we still don't know who's going to be on that ticket. They haven't released the names of their unity ticket They have canceled their Dallas convention. Uh, Last week, Joe Lieberman said they might name a ticket in March or April. And so far, they do have ballot access in 12 states, including 
some crucial ones like uh, Arizona and Florida and Nevada. Uh, there's RFK Jr., who will now be on the ballot in Utah. We don't know how many ballots he's going to be on. We have Cornell West and Jill Stein also in the race. And then it's impossible to talk about the presidential without what's going on in the courts. There are legal challenges to Trump's eligibility to hold office and the question of whether he can even be on the ballot. The Supreme Court is going to hear oral arguments on the Colorado decision, barring Trump from the primary ballot on February 8th, also right around the corner. Um, there is also the ongoing legal question of whether Trump enjoys broad presidential immunity for, uh, for his actions leading to January 6th. Uh, this is part of his defense in the federal election subversion indictment case. Um, his legal team's arguing that the case should be dismissed because the president is immune from prosecution. And, uh, just recently a DC appeals court heard arguments and the judges appeared skeptical to say the least of those arguments put forward by Trump's legal team. Trump's attorney was asked if a president could order SEAL Team 6 to assassinate a political rival, and he responded that he could only be prosecuted for that if the president was impeached and convicted first. The same judge asked uh, Trump's attorney hypotheticals about presidents selling pardons or selling military secrets to an enemy state. Uh, and then there is Joe Biden's insurrection pivot and whether it takes... Uh, with the American people. Last weekend, on the third anniversary of January 6th, uh, the president gave a speech in Valley Forge, Pennsylvania, highlighting the attack on the Capitol and the threat Trump poses to democracy. Uh, I, for one, was very happy to see this. Uh, Biden needs this election to be a choice and the pro uh, choice between the pro and anti-democracy factions. Republicans obviously want it to be a referendum, which we'll talk about uh, in one of these segments. So that's a lot. Uh, to hold in your head all at once. But uh, as those of us who sort of live and breathe politics know, um, it's important if you're, if you're trying to handicap the race, if you're trying to think about what's going to happen next, it's impossible without all of these unknowns on the field. So let's just start by going around the horn and how are you trying to sift through these different wild cards? What do you think about their potential impact on the race. Frank, do you want to lead off? So I, mean, I think there's a couple things that I think about, right? One yeah. is that, um, and I know I've said this before on the show, but presidential elections are not, um, they're not things that we can use past um, races to determine future outcomes. It's a little like what we say about the stock market, right? Like yep. past results don't predict future returns. The same is true here. So anyone who says, well, you know, a third party in 1992 did X, then they extrapolate out and say, well, this is how it could impact 24, I think is not a particularly useful way to think about it. The truth about this, which is true with every presidential election, is we don't know. There's all these factors, which is true in every election. Like if you go back to 2016 and you were sitting there in January 2016, you couldn't have foreseen what was going to happen in September and October of that year. And we can't do that now. So we can make a few general points, though, about this, right? One big point is what is clear is that neither presumed nominee is polling at a level within their party that is particularly normal at this stage in the game. So that's a little abnormal. And I think that would lead one to think that um, this third party stuff could really be impactful. Arguing who it's impactful for or who it impacts more, I think is really hard to say right now. So 
I, I won't dribble on about this, but I just think it's really hard to sit right now and say, well, the indictments will do this. Mm-hmm. The conviction could do X. The third party could do Y. I think that's really hard. The truth is it's going to be a crazy nine months. Yeah. Susan. Yes to everything that Frank said, <laughs> but we do know certain things that did happen, for example, in 2016, and that's Jill Stein on the ballot when Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump were running against each other. So, and, and, and it, that's ballot access in all 50 states. So that's a real thing. And they know where to go to try and append the election. We know what states are the swing states, et cetera. When it comes to RFK Jr., you know, he got on in Utah, but his path is not like Jill Stein's. He's not guaranteed ballot access. Um, no labels. We can go on for an hour, but I know Lil Nang really wants to get into it. I think that really is something substantial if they go forward. And it's also interesting that they are saying they need a super PAC because their purpose is only to gain ballot access. So they don't want to disclose their donors or more importantly, their expenditures because they want to be as non-transparent as humanly possible. But when we're looking at the overall dynamic, I think what's the one thing that I can focus on right now, I have no idea what September is going to look like. I don't know who's going to win what lawsuits, what the Supreme Court's going to do. But I do know that there's something that Joe Biden needs to do immediately to build up his narrative. And that is to start getting surrogates out to people of color and young people. The poll numbers that we see coming out, and I'm not suggesting that Joe Biden's going to lose the younger vote or that he's going to lose the Hispanic vote. But there is a narrative out there that once it gets so baked in, it's like the age thing. It just happens. And so I think that that's where they, and I can't believe I'm saying this because frankly, I'm not a huge fan of the vice president, but vice president Harris, the Biden team, she's it. Go use her where they can. And I think we're seeing a little bit of that, but they really need to, to jump up that aspect of their campaign. They can't wait till May or June or until after the convention. Yeah. Lene. Well, I have to disagree with Frank. I do think there are a couple things we do know, although there's a lot of things I don't know about what's going to happen over the next, say, 300 days. Um, But I do know a a few things. Number one, Joe Biden is not going to win by energizing a movement of pro-Biden supporters. That is not how he wins the election. He wins the election by reuniting the anti-Trump coalition. And that means that anyone else on the ballot as an option is a problem for Joe Biden because he needs to be the only other option other than Trump in order to reunite that coalition. I think that is absolutely clear um, from the data. And then also you look at where um, where he is actually losing some support. It is from people that we need <laughs> to be in our coalition who are pretty third-party curious, you know? And the reason that I worry a lot about this is Jill Stein had, what, two or three million dollars and managed to get more votes than the difference between Hillary and Trump in key states in 2016 and arguably throw the election to Trump. Uh, We know that, you know, No Labels already said they had 70 million. They may now have 300 million and they have ballot access in enough states to throw the election. And the thing that 
I also know that they have now been very clear about their strategy has shifted a whole bunch of times. And uh, if you want to know about all those iterations, you should read the 5,000 reports we've written on <laughs> what, what their changing strategy is. I can send them. But you don't even have room in the show notes. Um, but what they're now saying is even more dangerous because they do not have a path to victory. Okay, their path to victory, they would have to win states that Joe Biden won by, um, you know, 20, 30 points. They would have to win. Their their map has them winning the state of Delaware, the home of the Amtrak station named Joseph Robinette Biden. <laughs> like, it's bananas. There's no path to victory. We know that. But now what they're saying is that they just want to win enough electoral votes to push the election to the House of Representatives. This is their new plan. And this is the scariest thing I've heard in a very long time because we just passed the anniversary of January 6th, and now they are saying affirmatively in the press that what they want to do is win enough electoral votes to deny 270 to either Trump or Biden, and then force the House of Representatives to deal with this and create the most chaotic situation possible where they are trying to bargain um, and buy things from the other uh, candidates in order to tell faithless electors that they have recruited to go and vote for that candidate. I can imagine nothing scarier. Wait, I can, mean, can I, I just, just add one thing, Lenny, to that? Because it's uh, on the no labels thing that you're talking about. And then they want to build a coalition government. Right, right. <laughs> Which that, is I mean, definitely going to happen. I just have yeah. to add because that's insane. <laughs> And there is no world, even if the Democrats win the House of Representatives, um, they will not have enough delegation. So this, the way that this works is that the House votes by delegation in this instance, which means California gets one vote and North Dakota gets one vote. And there is no path, even if Democrats have a majority, to Democrats having a majority of delegations. So this means that the House Republicans, who just couldn't even figure out who their own speaker was, are going to determine who the president is. And I can see no uh, future that is scarier than that. So that's, you know, I think there are a lot of things we don't know. Those things we do know because they're saying them out loud. And that is why we think that the no labels threat is so dangerous and needs to be put down. Yeah. So they, they are saying those things out loud. Here's what I wonder, because for the longest time when they first started making noise about running a running a ticket, and again, we still don't know the names that would be on that ticket. Um it was sort of baked in that uh, because they kept saying, we won't do this if it will pull votes away from Joe Biden. Well, I have it on decent authority that they have sort of abandoned that commitment, uh, either explicitly or implicitly, public or private. They're no longer wedded to that. So, um, so that's a problem. But I think there is an open question here about, uh, and maybe you know who's going to be on the ticket. I don't know. But the names on that ticket do matter, uh, and they, they they could very well change who uh, the ticket pulls votes from. And it could be that they put someone up there who actually helps Biden. How do you think about that? I don't think there's any world in which they put someone up that helps Biden because they are explicitly saying they're running from the center. And Biden needs votes from the center. <laughs> so, okay. uh, and I think, you know, ask Ron DeSantis. It seems like it's pretty hard to get to the right of Trump. So if you're thinking that, you know, they're going to run somebody to the right of Trump, I don't even know that that person exists. Trump will out-Trump whoever that person is. And I think when you're looking at the coalitions that Lenny was talking about, one of them, as you know, I, this is how I know Ron, is working on the Lincoln Project, and I was doing independents and Republicans for Biden. That narrow, small victory that Biden had was in part for a lot of 
Republicans and center-right independents who would not vote for Trump. So looking at 20, what we learned from 2020 is that Joe Biden needed every vote in those swing states. He needs every vote. Donald Trump got more votes in 2020 than he did in 2016. They have been working. I don't like giving them credit, but the campaign is not Donald Trump. The campaign on the ground are people who are making smart decisions, frankly, on how to change their, how to develop their turnout, how to get involved in state party politics. They know what they're doing. And I don't see anyone who voted for for Donald Trump in 2016 and 2020 all of a sudden switching to Joe Biden. The person that scares me is the person who voted for Trump in 2016, voted for Biden, even though they did not like him in 2020, and now says, what do I do in 2024? I can't stand Joe Biden. I don't like his policies. He doesn't represent me. He's too old. You can go on and on on that list. So do they stay home? Or do they vote and do a no labels? If there's not a lot of options and it really just comes down to the two of them and people who like to vote decide, yes, it's my duty to vote, they're going to go, they're going to look hard at the third party option because they do not want to pull the lever for Joe Biden. We could spend the majority of, uh, or the entirety of the year, it is possible, with the question of whether Trump is actually eligible to hold office hanging over us. Um, We've talked about that question uh, under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment at length on the show. There's been a variety of opinions uh, expressed. Um, But ultimately, it's a legal question that has to get adjudicated in the courts. It's not a certainty that even though the Supreme Court is taking up the Colorado case, uh, that they will decide on the substance of the question. They may only deal with the process which means there's a very real uh, scenario where uh, this ends up in Congress on January, uh, January 6th of 2025. How do we deal with the political realities that this question presents, whether Trump is, in fact, eligible under the Constitution to hold office? Yeah, so I think there's a couple issues here, right? So one, back to the Supreme Court piece, I'm of the belief, not because of my a law degree that I don't have. Um, I, I don't see the Roberts court doing anything other than making sure that Trump is on the ballot. The way the court has positions itself, I think it would be very hard for them to not figure out a way, and I'm not the lawyer, so I don't know how, but figure out a way technically to get around this so that Trump is on the ballot. So I, I'm not of the belief that this is particularly a, a long-term problem, meaning I don't think this is a problem for next year. Politically, I think it's a incredibly damning problem, right? So uh, I I appreciate people doing their job in Colorado and Maine. And so like, I understand they have to do what they think is right. Politically, I think it is an incredible um, uh, boon for the former president, right? And I think just like the indictments, like uh, us versus them mentality is really helpful for the Trump base. It locks people down, gets people motivated. You know, we'll see, I think, Iowa will be a great test of this, right? It's supposed to be, you know, colder than cold. Um, And for those of us who've been there, right, this is a function of getting out there on Monday night and 
you know, you got to be committed to doing that. And when it's negative 10 or whatever it's supposed to be, like, that's a real test of your ability to get people out. And I think stuff like what's going on in Colorado and Maine, just get more Trump people to make sure that they're going to turn out and vote. Um, so politically, I think if I were in the Haley DeSantis uh, camps, like this was not good news, right? Like in, in any way, they can't spin this as like, oh, that's more reason to vote for me because Trump won't be on the ballot. So uh, politically, this was a killer. I think it's political for your right for the primary, but in the long run, it can work to Biden's advantage because it's once again talking about democracy in a very real way. Yeah, primary, it, it did hurt him. It took all the oxygen out. But again, long term, I actually think this could help Biden. I think that's true, Susan. I just don't think it's going to be around, right? So I think the court figures oh, out I, a way. Oh, yeah, I agree with you. I th- the court's going to have to make a decision quick. It's going to, co- it's going, I, from everyone I've spoken to who are actual attorneys, which I am not, the perfect, you know, most people say there is a legal argument. Of course, he's just not, it's based on qualifications. I agree. The Roberts court, I mean, I think they may even get away with doing it without do you know, just, I forget what it's called, but just putting out, um, their findings and not even saying what the vote was is what oh, I'm, I'm, I'm decision. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. That's what I'm looking at. I think because it's just too much division and this court is hearing too many cases, but either way, I think it's, it's resolved by March. Oh, I disagree. I totally disagree. I don't think it's resolved. I think there's a, because I don't think resolved a, legally or resolved. No resolved legally. It's a legal question. It's not a political question. I think, I think you have the court, the court will decide something uh, soon, but it's not for sure that they will decide on the merits on the substance. There is a, there's a very real possibility that they don't touch the merits that they, they, they deal with procedure and the court and the Colorado Supreme court's decision to remove them from a primary ballot, which is a different question altogether from whether or not you are qualified to hold office, which is the text of the constitution. And then this ends up in, uh, in Congress where uh, many originalist constitutional law scholars that I have read agree that Congress has a role in deciding eligibility as they count electoral college ballots, which is completely different from the mayhem that caused the January 6th insurrection uh, and, the, and, the, and the objections to counting. There, Congress has a duty to determine eligibility, and if the court doesn't touch that question, then and Donald Trump continues to run, and then he wins in November, then this is in front of Congress. So I don't think it goes away. Well, I think, I mean, I think if I was a betting person, I would be betting with Susan on this one, um, only because the Supreme Court doesn't have to take very many cases. It doesn't have cases by original jurisdiction very often. It has to vote to take cases, and they decided to take this one now. Um, And so that means that at least four of them want to make a decision on this earlier rather than later. Now, it only takes four to grant cert. It only takes four to get it in front of the Supreme Court. um, And obviously you need five. (laughs) So uh, I do think that, you know, that kind of pushes in that direction. But you're absolutely right. If, If there is a path to them making a decision that doesn't apply nationwide, I do think it's the primary piece because parties are entitled to put up who they want. Parties are in charge of primaries. And they're entitled to put up who they want as their nominee. If, you know, the Green Party wants to put somebody on the ballot that is ineligible because they're, you know, that wants to put AOC on the ballot or something like that, 
they're probably allowed to do that. They're not going to win and she's not going to be seated in an office for a couple of years. But um, but parties are generally allowed to do with their line. But they they still have to make the qualification. So I don't think the Green Party could because because that is, I think, a fairly clean cut example of not meeting the qualification. Yes. And this is the question I think that they may decide because the question there's a question of authority. Whose job is it to decide? And and this is why we have a fifty state solution, right? Essentially, we we have a patchwork of state laws that that speak to the duties of uh, local elections officials at varying levels uh, to to decide eligibility criteria. Right, and, but 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 here's also another thing: Chris Christie didn't make it on the ballot in May. He was knocked off by Chris the Secretary. Christie, who's no yeah. longer running. Who's no? But, yeah, we should, we should mention as of last he's night, no, no longer running. running. However, they knocked him off because he didn't have enough signatures. So you can't just leave someone on because you think they should be on or you like them. Well, but the sig- the signature thing is our rules. That's not a dif- disqualification. That's a rule about ballot access. So that, I think, is different than a constitutional qualification for office. I think that obviously the thing that's hard about this is um, it's not as clear cut as somebody who's under the age requirement or, you know, not a citizen of the United States um, or, you know, not a natural born citizen. That This obviously has some uh, some subjectivity to it. But the thing that I don't think the Roberts Court will do, I agree with Frank, I don't see them knocking Trump off the ballot, but I also don't see them ruling that Trump is not an insurrectionist. So that's why I think they might actually do the, you know, something around standing or something around uh, process, to your point, because um, I don't think that there's a majority of this court that wants to say he did not commit insurrection. So, you know, that leans towards they're going to find a way out of this. Uh, but then the question to me is, why did they take it in the first place? Um, unless they want to say, we're going to resolve this question so it doesn't hang over us for the rest of the I, year. I think that's exactly right. I think Susan's also right that if they if they can't count to 9-0, then it's probably going to be a procurium decision, which means we won't know what the vote was. But I bet you Robert bends over backwards to try and get it to 9-0, however they decide to handle it. Um, I will be fascinated to read the... Uh, the, the amicus briefs as they roll in on this question. I know that Professor Akhil Amar, shout out to uh, Professor Amar at Yale, who is doing amazing work on this question on his podcast. He's been on this one. Um, and I I continue to refer people to go listen to uh, to the way they're breaking down the, the, the arguments here. Um, he's preparing an amicus brief, so I can't wait to read that one. There's also this sort of Christian supremacist movement that is uh, that is rising uh, behind Donald Trump. Um, a while back, I did a, a long two-part series with um, a wonderful guest named Matthew Taylor, who did uh, a podcast series called Charismatic Revival Fury. And if you haven't listened to it, you should. Uh, if you want the short version, listen to our two-part conversation on politicology. But this falls under the umbrella of, oh yeah, don't forget Trump is scarier than ever. And the latest salvo is this, if you've been following along, very predictable religious ad. It's like two and a half minutes. Uh, So we won't play the whole thing, but I do want to give you a taste of it. Here it goes. And on June 14th, 1946, God looked down on his planned paradise and said, I need a caretaker. So God gave us Trump. God said, I need somebody willing to get up before dawn 
fix this country, work all day, fight the Marxists, eat supper, then go to the Oval Office and stay past midnight at a meeting of the heads of state. So God made Trump. Frank, I'm really curious about how you see this movement developing um, because you're, you're familiar with the sort of the religious pieces of the Republican coalition and, uh, and sort of how did you react to this and, and how are you watching the sort of the, the movement develop? Yeah. So I'm going to leave out my personal objection to this video. Um, you know, I think this is really smart. I I mean, I, I, again, I don't personally like it. Um, but I think this is just, it's really well done. It's, um, it's, not only touching this evangelical Christian piece that is crucial in the primary, right? It is more crucial than most people understand. Yep. Um, both from a terms of a turnout standpoint, but also just these are the, you know, in a lot of these states, these are the people who volunteer. These are the people who make your phone calls, who knock on doors. They write the small dollar checks. Like this is a crucial part of this. And um, y- if your ability to kind of lock that down, just, really means you can't lose the the primary. Um, so I think that's really smart for them. Additionally, you know, the ad does a really good job of pointing out these subtleties, um, the stain past midnight. Like we all know where, what, what he's going after here. And I think strength is a winner. It's, mm-hmm. it's not simply a winner with Republican voters. It's, it's often a winner with independents. So I'm not suggesting this ad is, particularly useful with independence. But what it tells you is thematically, these guys are getting it, right? They, they get what this is all about. Um, this is strength versus weakness. That's a, you know, that is often a winner, right? As the one of the things I always think about is like, who looks the part, right? This is mm-hmm. something Trump does great when he thinks about his picks, but the truth is that's kind of how voters think too. They think about that somewhat at the Senate level, but they definitely think that at the presidential level, who looks the part. And so I think the Trump team, much better than in 16, much better than 20, like they clearly, um, if you were going to be more scared about why is Trump more likely to win this time than the last, I think mm-hmm. um, the talent around him is um, superior than yeah. it's been in the past. And I think an ad like this just demonstrates that. You don't have to like the ad. You don't have to understand the right. ad. But the truth is in... in this time, I think it was really well done, and it, it puts his primary opponents in a no-win situation. And the truth is, right, DeSantis tried to do something like this, right? But, like, again, like, Trump just does it better, right? And, again, it goes to his staff. Like, they just did a better job. This is incredibly compelling. And I think about – I have some friends who are, are Republicans um, in Richmond who are highly educated, but, like, they – they get this like so they wouldn't get the that they don't probably agree so much with the god piece of it but all these other little components in that ad is exactly why they tell me they're going to vote for trump right and so i think this is um if you're if you're hoping trump to lose like ads like this should scare you so here's my question lene there so as as frank noted there are a lot of people especially on the um at the grassroots of the Republican Party and the evangelical movement, who get this at a sort of emotional level. And what I wonder is um, whether national democratic political operatives get this in the same way, certainly not in a resonant way, but 
how powerful, how much emotional juice it has for voters on the right. And what do you do about that? I think the answer is they don't. And I also think that they're not seeing it. You know, one of the things that is really different this time around is that the press has decided that they aren't going to cover every single crazy thing that Trump does, in part to try to not elevate every single thing that Trump does. Um, but it means that w unless you are assigned to watch this video, which I was by our producers, uh, lovely politicology producers forced me to watch this last night, I wouldn't have seen it. And I... It, pay attention to this kind of stuff. So I think the fact that he's now on Truth Social instead of Twitter, the fact that the press is covering him differently than before means that he's allowed to say the quiet part out loud. He's allowed to say bananas things that resonate with his base. And the people that are still unsure about what they're going to do in 2024 are not seeing it. And that's really scary to me. I don't know how to elevate it in a way that doesn't elevate it, you know? And I think the, especially the fact that, um, you know, we're not, we're not seeing him every day, uh, but then his base is seeing him every day means that he gets the best of both worlds. Usually if you're doing something that's going to really, really resonate with your base, it's probably going to piss off some voters in the middle and he's not having to walk that line yet. So I think the strength piece is absolutely going to be a through line, no question. And, you know, it shows Biden's weak. He's too old. Uh, and so my alternative is strong, strong man, strong, strong, strong. That's what we need. So that piece will come through and he'll do it in a way that's more appealing to swing voters. Uh, so he's laying that groundwork, but doing it in a way that absolutely resonates. Um, and to the point about that he's got better people around him this time, he certainly does. Um, it made me laugh that this time I recognized they said the word supper, um, which, by the way, is like totally, you know, Midwestern evangelical word. Like, I'm going to go have supper and then go back up to the office. So I'm like, they know this stuff. Like, the like de Democrats wouldn't know to say supper instead of dinner. <laughs> <laughs> well, they're <laughs> like, still they're saying doing Latinx, it well. <laughs> so there's, there's that. <laughs> Susan, go ahead. Um, you know, just to kind of thread it through a little bit, um, to Linnea's point on how the media covers Trump, you know, they are able to do a lot more targeting that doesn't get picked up every every day. I mean, if you think about it, back in the 30s and 40s, you did train stops and you could say whatever you wanted on the West Coast because no one would hear about it on the East Coast. That was, you know, there was no technology there. Now, the way technology is, you can target in such a way you and you don't have to do it on television or cable. You can get deeper. And to me, that goes to, to Frank's point is like, that gets people. That brings them out. And you know, sometimes I wonder if we're really talking about a Republican coalition anymore versus a Trump coalition. Because another Republican can have those messages. It's not going to work. And also to Frank's point, this gets people motivated. This gets them to the polls. That's the thing, is that people are going to go to the polls, those who vote for Trump, because they really want to vote for Trump. They're, they are excited about it. This does resonate with them. Yes, Biden, the majority of people are going to go because that's what they do. They're going to vote for Joe Biden, the Democrat, whatever it is. But when he needs that extra 20% of people just to show up energetically, whether it's from his base or, or some moderate Republicans, 
they don't, if Democrats do not know how to, to do that. That's why even in the Lincoln Project, it was so new when it was happening. And no one actually, you know, it was former Republicans helping a Democrat. Something I would really like to see, speaking of the Lincoln Project, is, um, you know, the, in, under the question of what do you do about this, something I would really like to see is an evangelical version of what the Lincoln Project did for the Republican Party in 2020, a, a, a grassroots group of people, leaders who will stand up and say, whoa, this is not Christianity. As a matter of fact, this is blasphemy. And, uh, it, but it has to come from within sincere uh, believers um, from within that community. Um, so I hope that we see something like that. But Frank, there's another question here that Lene made me think of, which is sort of how maybe if you're in this uh, center-left leaning media bubble, you may be missing this, probably are missing this. And I think this raises a question about, you know, the lack of ideological diversity in media, in journalism, and, and, and how that siloing of media shapes what we see, what people see, and in turn, how they're covering it. Like, for, how can you cover what's happening in the media bubble if you aren't, uh, you know, if, if you aren't tuned into what the campaign is, is doing, is, and if they're targeting it so well? You're, you're missing this altogether, and I think um, ordinary observers, voters are missing this, because it is true that this video will energize a lot of people on the right. It will you know, as you said, this is where the intensity lies in a campaign, the people who are writing checks and, and volunteering. But it is also true that it would freak a lot of other people out. Yeah, so here's, here's the question I have for all of you, not to not answer your question, Ron, but do we think that the media is doing this? I think, do we think this is because of a hangover from 16? Or do we think we had to pick one of the, or do we think it's because there's this faux primary going on? And so the media is like, <laughs> which we haven't talked about, yeah. <laughs> right? But like for a reason, because why right, would so, we? <laughs> right. So like, if you're the New York times and the Washington post and all these guys, like you're covering this primary, like it's a right. primary, right? right? Not that the one person is ahead by 50 points. Who's also the former president of the United States, who's also capitalized, right? He's got the resources to do it. Like, we're acting as if there's three people now running and they equally have this chance. And so we're going to cover them equally, right? So Haley does something and she gets all the same coverage. And it's like, when that all ends, whether that ends Monday night or the following Tuesday or after South Carolina, but at some point it's ending, right? We all know that. Yes, yes. Then does the media go back and say, well, we have two nominees. We can't not cover Trump and all these things. Like, does this ad, if this ad gets released like on March 10th after Super Tuesday, and he's clearly the nominee, like then do they cover it? Or is or do we live in a world where they're so freaked out about 2016? They're like, well, we just can't cover mm. him. We can't cover mm. every crazy thing because we did that in 16 and we got in trouble for that. So we can't do that again. Not realizing mm. that what they did in 16 is not that. But that's a question for you guys. I don't know the answer to it. We'll find out, obviously. Well, I mean, I can tell you right now that I know of a lot of people in the media who are, just to add to that, are concerned about how you tr cover the trials or mm. even the court dates because Trump treats them like campaign events. Yep. And you get and you they accrue to his benefit. And exactly. So are you covering an, a campaign event? Are you covering a news story? How do you do it? How do you try and extract the two? 
you really can't as far as I'm concerned. And yes, I think the pre- that everyone's trigger shy about being 2016 all over again. What they don't, I mean, I think that's silly because there is just no similarity between the, the two times and what you can't fix the mistakes of the past. You're not going to change elections. But that, I think, is also part of their problem. And as far as the primary goes, I now that they're trying to look like, I think, that, yes, we are giving everyone a chance. You know, they're still even covering Asa Hutchinson in New Hampshire, for crying out loud. I thought he dropped out months ago. <laughs> but- oh, my God. I, I logged into my podcast feed this morning, and there were all of these podcast episodes about a Republican debate that happened last night. Did you oh. know that was happening? Yeah. Like, what? It's, <laughs> no, because the person that is going to win the nomination has not participated in any of these. And we're still covering that as if that was equal news to whatever's happening in Congress or, you know, in your local community. I was like, OK, Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis hung out. Great. In either cycle, <laughs> they wouldn't have even had that debate. That's right. right. That's right. the right. That's the truth we all know, is if the front runner up by 50 points in Iowa wasn't going to do the debate, CNN wouldn't have run the debate. It's so true. Right? We watched that in 2016, right? Debates yep. just got canceled. Well, we also watched the first two, you could argue, of this cycle. The first two debates we, we watched because there was some interesting, and we were, a lot of people were curious, even on, on both sides, of what could it happen. It was reasonable. To have a glimmer of hope that one of these candidates might come out swinging and actually put a dent in Donald Trump's sixty-point lead at that point, but but that's what so it showed. That. That's what the by the end of the first debate, I would argue, but some can say the second. That they shut themselves out of the question of could they take on Trump. People saw them and are like, nope, yep, <laughs> not going yep. with these guys. <laughs> yep, I think this media question is is one I will I will put to our journalist friends on politicology, Olivier Knox and and Andy Kroll at ProPublica and see what they think about this. I think it's a I think it's something we need to keep talking about. Okay, let's pivot to the border, arguably the most salient uh political issue in the media right now. Um things are looking worse for Joe Biden and border security. There's both the policy side and the political side to this. So I'll try and lay them both out and then uh, and then you guys can tell me what I'm missing. But they are um, pretty much at a stalemate on the policy side. Uh, we've been at weeks of negotiations now. Senators haven't been able to reach a deal on border security, immigration, and um, Ukraine aid. Uh, after telling Fox News Sunday that he expected language this week, Republican Senator James Langford who is leading the Republicans uh, in the negotiation, reversed course on Monday. He said he's doubtful that the text would be released on Friday night, but might be released next week. President Biden, Speaker Mike Johnson, discussed immigration and border security in a phone call on Wednesday. Um, Back in December, Biden said he was willing to make, quote, significant concessions on immigration policy. Those include uh, raising the bar for asylum claims, expanding uh, expedited deportations, and creating an authority to expel migrants without humanitarian screenings when border agents are overwhelmed. There are uh, sticking points around the parole authority. Uh, Biden doesn't want to give it up, and Republicans want to curtail it. So the chances of hammering that deal out uh, might be slim. And then you have the cherry on top of all this, which is last week, uh, Troy Nels told CNN that Republicans should reject any deal on immigration that could help Joe Biden's approval ratings before the election in November. One of the most cynical things I've seen on this so far. So. Then there's the politics of this. And on the politics side, uh, our very own Mike Madrid just wrote an outstanding editorial in the New York Times this week titled, Why Biden Must Collide with the Democratic Party on Immigration. Uh, And the the choice quote for me was, securing the borders of a sovereign state isn't racism, 
it's among the first responsibilities of government, end quote. And as one New York Times commenter put it, it's absolutely remarkable to me that this needs to be stated as a condition for the rest of the discussion. But here we are. There's a CBS News uh, YouGov poll out this week showing that almost half of Americans think there's a crisis at the border, and 68% of them disapprove of the way Biden's handling the border. However, it's important to note, 66% disapproved of the way Republicans in Congress are handling the matter. Still, the, uh, the issue is good for Republicans, and it accrues to their benefit if this keeps up, which is why Nels said what he did. Uh, 63% of Americans also think uh, the Biden administration should be tougher on immigrants crossing the border. And Susan, this one's for you, finally, uh, just to give our listeners a sense of the, the potent optics here on Tuesday in Brooklyn. Uh, the city of New York moved nearly 2,000 migrants from a temporary shelter at Floyd Bennett Field to a Brooklyn high school because of the heavy rain and wind speeds. Uh, and the 3,500 students who attend school there were switched to remote instruction the following day. So the first thing I thought of, uh, and this is still sort of making the rounds on the news, the first thing I thought of was you, because some number of months ago on a look ahead, you said, just wait until the migrant crisis shows up in the suburbs. How does this episode out of New York um, and the, you know, the images of migrants sleeping in schools and, uh, you know, quote, displacing students shape the narrative? Well, I may have been the only one to watch the debate last night on CNN between Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley, but Ron DeSantis brought it up. And that's exactly what he said. He goes, we have children who are kicked out of school, and his words, not mine, because of illegal immigrants. That's a big deal. And I can tell you, when we look at the suburbs, the Santos seat, which is on, mostly on Long Island, a little bit of Queens, that seat. I'm sorry, the what? Would, the who? The Santos Santo? seat. The who? What? <laughs> the former that has Santos been vacated? seat has been vacated. <laughs> he still thinks he's a congressman. I think he still oh, tells people that, but you know, whatever. He tells them that on Cameo for 20 bucks a pop, but continue. <laughs> but that, that race, that special election is happening February 13th. And let me tell you, every ad is is on immigration. It reminds me a lot of what we saw when Republicans did very well in 2021 on crime. The crime numbers were not in the suburbs. They weren't even at that time so bad in the city. And remember we said, you can't tell people that crime is down. They feel it. They see it. Well, the immigration issue is now people are not just seeing it at the border. You know, it's the, the, the group that was making their way up and there was a caravan like that seems like quaint now compared to the border crossings that we've seen in a total year. And you have people who are going to use those pictures in the cities as a mechanism to scare suburbia. And again, already seeing it. And the, the Brooklyn school is I bet going to be mentioned nationwide in races because it's the prime example of, of somebody taking away something from our children. Um, Lynette, I want to come to you on the policy and how Biden fixes this. But first, Frank, does the cynicism of Republicans in Congress end up hurting them on this uh, eventually? Because it is just so brazen. I mean, it may hurt a couple of members, but right. The truth about that poll, when, whenever they ask a question, it's like, 
approve or disapprove about something and they give you the president and then they give you Congress, you always have to keep in mind that Congress approval ratings are always low. But that doesn't actually matter because we don't elect a group of congressmen. We elect individual congressmen. So like, no, I don't. And the truth is like, this has been going on for a long time. He just said mm-hmm. the, the quiet part out loud. I don't yeah. think this hurts them in any way, shape or form. The party clearly does better. Like if you just ask an independent voter about who do you trust more on, on the border, like Republicans just um, disproportionately do better on that question. So yeah. politically, not policy and not what I think is yeah. right, wrong or indifferent. Like, yeah, that's really good politics. You yeah. want this to be the issue for the next nine months, right? You don't want court cases. You don't want, you know, the economy doing well. You don't want low and uh, unemployment. You don't want any of that. Like if this is all about the border, I, I don't care who runs like a Republicans win. Something, Lene, that I have uh, pondered out loud over the last couple of months repeatedly is, okay, this is God. This is just so bad. Take the weapon out of their hands. And so um, Mike, Mike wrote in this piece, um, which I which I can't wait to hear what you think about the supposition among much of the Democratic establishment and progressive activists is that Latino voters prioritize more relaxed immigration policies over border security. To win re-election, President Biden must redefine the narrative that has become orthodoxy and lead his party towards supporting significantly enhanced border security measures. While this would be a prudent political move, such a shift would most likely lead to an internal Democratic civil war. Where are we? A on the policy. Correct me if I've missed anything, and how you expect a deal to shape uh, shape up if Biden can 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 meet them somewhere. But also, what's going on within the Democratic coalition? And is Mike right here? Yeah, I have so many thoughts about this. So let me try to put a, a few things on the table. Um, number one, you may not know that actually Joe Biden has deported people at a faster clip than Donald Trump ever did. He also has, under Joe Biden, you are less likely to get your asylum claim granted than you were under Trump. So this is not a debate based on facts at this moment. This is a debate based on fear and uh, and concern, and I understand that. But um, part of the problem is that the Biden folks won't say that out loud. They won't say out loud, we've deported more people than Trump ever did, because it would completely blow up their coalition. And so I think, unfortunately, what some of the folks within the Biden campaign and and within even the administration have decided is that they should just be quiet on this because there is a common wisdom among lots and lots of political consultants that you don't want to play on your opponent's field. So if if the issue is really bad for you, which objectively it is, don't talk about it. Change the topic to prescription drug pricing. That is bad advice, and I think it is advice that they are currently following. And I think they're in a pickle, though, because obviously the Republicans have no motivation to actually fix this. No motivation. And so for folks who are saying, well, why won't the Democrats take a deal? The Democrats would take literally any effing deal that was on the table. Any deal. You could get at least, I'd say, 45 Democrats to vote for it in the Senate, maybe 40, but plenty to put it over the line. And I will I'll give you this example. So Alex Padilla put out a letter that 
basically said any kind of discussion about reforms to what is an objectively broken asylum system are racist and we shouldn't be having this conversation. That's not helpful. But you know how many people he got to sign that letter? How many? Ten. Ten senators signed that letter. Wow. That is nothing. That is actually a bad advocacy move. If I am trying to push people to not negotiate or to do whatever, you know, I actually just did this on a higher ed thing. We were trying to get a bunch of senators to create pressure. Um, And you don't put out a letter that has 10 signatories. It shows that you're weak. It shows that your coalition is super, super small because that means that about 40 of your colleagues who are supposed to be with you on this are not with you. So I do think that Democrats would take any deal. Republicans have literally no reason to do that because it would only help Biden and fix a problem that has benefited them politically. And because even if there's a few in the Senate who are legit trying to fix some of these problems, the House won't pass it. So why would they walk the plank on something that Heritage Foundation has already said we're scoring this negatively, no matter what's in it? They haven't seen the details. They just said any deal is a negative score when they know that the House won't pass it. So if if Langford thought he could get Mike Johnson to get something through, he might agree to it, but that's not going to happen. So I think that they're they're in this situation where they can't they can't get a deal and they need to do something. And my vote would be that they go hard on, you know, instead of saying let's avoid the issue, go big on the issue. Go big and say, you know what? Republicans have yet again pulled Pulled the wool from our eyes, you know. They're they're uh, they keep pretending that they're Lucy with the football, and then they pull it away. Whatever you want to use as a metaphor for the fact that they've walked away again and again and again and again and again, and say, "Fine, I'm going to use executive power to fix it." And you have a huge amount of executive power on immigration. So you know what you do? You say, "Actually, we're going to pause asylum cases." for a period of time until we can get the backlog down, because it should not be the case that getting your asylum claim heard takes three or four years. And it should not be the case that people are waiting in this country to hear if they get to stay in this country or not. That's not how this needs to work. So we just need to surge resources, send every federal employee who volunteers in a delegation down there, process cases. We need fast, fair, and final decisions about who is eligible. If you're not eligible, we are going to send you home. And then at the same time, go ahead and do generous things for immigrants who have been here for a long time. Say, we're going to grant parole to folks who have been in the country for 10 years or more. Say, we're going to grant uh, mixed status families some level of certainty and work permits, because those are the people that are connected to the Latino voters that he needs to care about. The salient, the political salience of asylum, there's no constituency out there that is like begging for more asylum. Yeah. They are begging for certainty for mixed status families. Give them that. But you can't be afraid of this. Can't be it, afraid does, of it. it doesn't work. I totally agree. This is so I so here this is my sort of political question for you because I totally agree. Biden should go out there and he should he should actually own this issue, really lead on it. And if he's afraid of uh blowing up the coalition, I wonder, again, not on the Democratic side. So I don't understand the sort of the internal dynamics here, but by blowing up the coalition, what are we actually talking about? People who are just not going to vote for him again? I don't buy that. No, I don't buy so, that either. And I think, so here's here's what we're really talking about. Yeah. Uh, we are now in a situation where the immigration groups, the advocacy groups, the movement have just decided not to play at all. 
they do not have a solution. They're not putting anything on the table. They are just saying no. And they are sending out, even the ones that I used to call kind of the coalition of the reasonable, are sending out press releases that say what the Senate is talking about right now is equal to Trump and it's racist, and the Democrats need to stop talking to Republicans about any of this. They're not saying, well, let's not do parole, but and let's not do asylum this way, or you know, giving substantive suggestions. They're just comparing it to Trump and calling it racist and offering absolutely no solutions. Those folks are not part of the compromise discussion anymore because they're not being productive. So you know what? I don't really care what they think right. because they don't speak for immigrants in this country. They don't speak for Latino voters yeah. in this country. They don't speak for anyone. But you're either the trying Twitterati. to solve the problem or you're not. That's and right. If you've, if you've abdicated that role, then get out. You don't get to help. And one of my very, very favorite um, immigration experts, Frank Sherry, who for yeah, a, on the show. a long time has negotiated these um, dynamics behind the scenes, um, he said to me something I thought was just brilliant, which is, They'll yell about whatever the asylum reforms are if Biden takes this path that I've laid out for two days. They're already yelling. They'll yell for two days. <laughs> and then they will take all of their resources and focus on processing mixed status families and getting yeah. as many people through the legal authorities that Biden creates because that is the thing that people care about. And so I do think you're going to have to take some hits fine, but realize that they don't speak for many people. Right. And they certainly don't speak for immigrants, and they certainly don't speak for Latino voters. Lead, Mr. President. Let's go. Now that we have caught up on a few of the most important stories this week, uh, let's turn to the stories you are watching. Susan, what'd you bring? I brought Nevada primary slash caucus <laughs> because for anyone who knows, it's like a real S show out there. In Nevada for you can Republicans. Say it. So <laughs> we'll just bleep you. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I'm gonna make a prediction which is just not even significant because it's just the way it is. Nikki Haley will win another primary before South Carolina. She will win the Nevada primary. Now, she's also the only one running in the primary that still <laughs> has an a, ongoing campaign. And Donald Trump. Well, doing the the, uh, the Nevada caucus because it's basically him and DeSantis, and so and that's assuming that DeSantis is still running for president by um, February eighth. So I I just think it'll be interesting, and I guess what the flag is is could Nikki Haley, even though there's no delegates at stake, make some win? Like if she's got some momentum, I don't. It, it's sometimes hard to wait those six weeks until. Um, South Carolina, four weeks, with something in between, it it could shake but things Susan. up a little bit. So I, th- I'm watching that because I just think it's actually amazing how screwed up it is. Yeah. Do you want to explain to people why there's a why there's a caucus and an election at the same time? Because I bet you some people are scratching their heads. What do you mean? How can how can mean? two different people win? Yeah. <laughs> well, it actually goes to Nevada state law about having a quote primary and there's been lawsuits about it by the way. And it was signed into law that there would be a primary by the governor in 2021, I think it was. So this fight has been going on since then. And it's and Republicans aren't particularly happy about it. It's not this is and I should highlight this isn't like an anti-Trump fighting for a primary and the Trumpers like saying, no, we want a caucus. This is like, 
Republican establishment and just general folks who wanted to have a caucus, but there were a few people wanting to challenge it. So it's just it's just another thing that are that are going to leave people scratching their heads. But I think that there may be something beneficial to Nikki Haley in the end. Okay, we will see. Uh, Lene, what'd you bring? Well, I like to keep an eye on the blue states um, in election years because oftentimes they come up with really terrible ideas that are then appended to the Democratic Party brand that we all have to contend with. And it's happened over and over again. Uh, I think it has um, it caused some of the losses in blue states that we saw in winnable races in 2022 in the House. Um, And it caused kind of a divergence between 2022 House races in kind of purpley states where people aren't doing insane things in the state legislature and places like Oregon, California, New York, where people are sometimes doing insane things in the state legislature. So the latest insane thing in the state legislature uh, that is about to come up is reparations. In which state? Wait for it. California in 2020 created a commission to study reparations. They have now come back with recommendations about reparations in California, which include cash payments of up to $1.2 million per person. (laughs) So I have not polled this recently, but I'm going to go ahead and say that is not a popular position. I'm also going to go ahead and say Gavin Newsom thinks that he's running for president in 2028. So we're about to have the the state legislature is now going to be having to take up these recommendations and decide what to do with it. They're the one that created the commission. If they say, go F yourself, like that's not a good look. But they can't do any of these things that have been recommended. And Gavin Newsom is like, I don't want to be anywhere near this. But you know that the state legislature is going to queue it up for him. So I'm just waiting for lots and lots of coverage over the next few weeks to months um, on how the Democratic Party is now trying to pay African-Americans $1.2 million apiece. It harkens back to um, the continuing discussion in focus groups across the nation about Obama phones. People still think that President Obama gave free phones to African-Americans. I don't understand where that came from. It still comes up in focus groups. Like, a decade later. I don't understand. So and they're I'm facing really like a twenty five billion dollar deficit. That's right. They don't budget. have any money. <laughs> just saying. So it's gonna be awesome. Just stay tuned. Wild. That's a good one. Frank, what are you watching? Well, I'm I mean, I'm watching the Iowa caucus, not because I, I think there's much to watch, but I I always think it's fascinating to see how this thing turns out relative to the amount of time and energy people put into it. So what's interesting from a, from a operative point of view on this is, you know, DeSantis has done this standard 99 County, you know, this big belief that like, you got to shake everybody's hand in Iowa and you got to do all this. And Trump has done literally the complete opposite. Um, Fewer events than ever. And like, you know, it's one of those things that I, I always think back to 2015 about like, we we tend to run these races because of what we think is the way to do it. And you don't have to like Trump. You don't have to like his campaign people, but I, I do give them a lot of credit for thinking outside the box all the time. And I think the turnout in Iowa on Monday night will be fascinating because what tradition would tell you and what operatives would tell you, especially operatives from Iowa would tell you is like, Oh, DeSantis is going to outperform greatly because he's done all the work and he, 
you know, built the infrastructure and he did all this and, and he traveled around and, and we're going to know whether or not that matters relative to your opponent. And Mm -hmm. I think that'll be fascinating to see. And then the second thing that we always watch is like this week between Iowa and New Hampshire. And again, I don't, I don't think this primary is particularly in question, but it'll be fascinating to see if, if, um, if the ambassador outperforms the governor and gets momentum going into New Hampshire, is that sufficient for her to win New Hampshire? Um, you know, that'll be fascinating. Like, as we know, winning New Hampshire doesn't actually mean anything. Ask, you know, John McCain, you know, ask <laughs> yeah. a lot of people, right? So, um, but it'll just be fun to watch um, to see if any of this um, changes those two races. I think at the end of the day, he, Trump goes on to win New Hampshire. As Susan's pointed out, that thing is is literally, they talked about rigged elections. Talk about a rigged election. Whew, yeah. That is the definition of rigged. Yep. South Carolina to me seems, um, you know, really hard for, for the ambassador. And then Super Tuesday is a bunch of Southern states. So like, I, I don't yeah. really know what's going on here, but it would still be fun to watch Iowa and New Hampshire. It's always fun. I'm just glad I'm not there in the cold. That's all. <laughs> here, here. Uh, I will bring up the rear today. This one's super fun for me. Also super nerdy. The SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission finally approved the creation of Bitcoin ETF, which stands for Exchange Traded Funds, on Wednesday. They had been blocking this for about a decade, 10 years in waiting, these applications, where many of them rejected and denied. Uh, The writing had been on the wall since a court decision last summer in which uh, Gary Gensler got his ass handed to him, uh, and they ruled that the SEC's treatment of these applications reached the very high standard for arbitrary and capricious. Now, uh, nearly a dozen major Wall Street asset managers like BlackRock, ARK Investments, Fidelity, Franklin Templeton, these guys are giants, are all launching Bitcoin ETFs. There are 11 of them in total. As we record today on Thursday, uh, they have begun uh, trading. So there's a lot of important things here, but I want to point to two specifically. One is that the SEC had this fiasco on Tuesday when somebody tweeted from their official account that they had approved ETFs when they had not. Uh, Just minutes later, and I think it was three minutes to be exact, uh, SEC chair Gary Gensler put out a tweet from his personal account saying that the account had been hacked and the ETFs hadn't been approved. But that bogus tweet sent the price of Bitcoin up and then it plummeted when the SEC clarified that it hadn't been approved. So there were real people who lost money because of it, and the estimate is about $300 million were liquidated in that three minutes. Uh, later, X, formerly Twitter, uh, confirmed that the SEC account was compromised because someone had the phone number associated with the account and two-factor authentication was not turned on. This is the Securities and Exchange Commission <laughs> who warns everybody to <laughs> mind their security as they're dealing with financial instruments. So. The SEC, the the TLDR on this one is that the SEC might be responsible for market manipulation. And that's the thing that the SEC usually investigates private entities for. They can't investigate themselves. It might be Congress. It might be the CFTC. We don't know, but watch this space. The other piece of this is, I think, more remarkable. And if you zoom out, uh, it's, 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 it's really stunning. It's how the tune on Wall Street has changed. Um, right after this announcement. So in 2017, uh, BlackRock CEO Larry Fink called Bitcoin, quote, an index of money laundering. 
uh, and he became a Bitcoin convert in 2020. But now that other asset managers are starting to list these ETFs uh, and they can make money off of these ETFs, they have started trying to gain appeal to the Bitcoin community and gain their trust. So Franklin Templeton changed their profile photo. Franklin Templeton is a $1.5 trillion asset manager, okay? They changed their profile photo to a Bitcoin meme with laser eyes. No joke. Uh, one of the listers is pledging to donate 5% of their profit to the group of programmers who maintain the code base known as Bitcoin Core. Uh, and here's the thing you have to understand that makes this all so stunning. Bitcoin was born out of the cypherpunk movement in the aftermath of the 2008 financial catastrophe and because of the 2008 financial catastrophe. It was a big fuck you to Wall Street and to fiat currencies. By design, it is antagonistic to the abuses of centralized finance and fiat regimes. It's antagonistic to Wall Street. And now these Wall Street giants are clamoring to market and sell it. And the thing that they have identified as their value proposition is hugging the Bitcoin community. The suits are hugging the plebs. And I think there's something ironic and sort of beautifully poetic about this. Um, so I leave you with that. Um, and my mom bought Bitcoin this morning. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, Susan, how was that? That was awesome. I, you were right. I didn't know you were going there. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, where can everybody find you on the internet, Lene? Uh, I stopped Xing a while okay. ago. So I Fair. think just go to thirdway.org for 1 million reports about how no labels <laughs> is evil. Frank, how about you? Still off the internet? Yeah, I'm, I'm not on the internet. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Susan, do you want to be found? Um, actually, I think Frank, Frank's my new hero. Um, <laughs> I am on X, but like just a little bit and nothing else. So it's still okay. per COS. I pay attention to it every few days, but not so much anymore. Okay. Catch you next time. All right, everybody. Thanks for listening today. If you have questions about anything we discussed today, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at politicology.com. Whether it's an episode idea, a topic recommendation, or just a simple note about what you thought, we love to hear from you, and we might even use it on an upcoming episode. Also, if you can head over to the Apple Podcast app and rate us five stars and leave a review there, we'd really appreciate it. This helps us rise in the rankings so that new people can discover politicology organically. I'm Ron Steslow, and I'll see you in the next episode. 